Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. John Coleman, Associate Professor of Politics at Ave Maria University. And we're talking about his book, Everyone Orthodox to Themselves, John Locke and his American Students on Religion and Liberal Society. Dr. Coleman, wonderful to have you here today. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so, I mean, just from the get-go, what led you to write this book? Well, a, a few things. Um, my some of my previous work was on Lucretius and, and Epicureanism, and in the course of of uh, researching for that book, I came into contact with some of Jefferson's letters and Jefferson uh, talking about his own Epicureanism. And uh, in the course of some of that, I got interested in Jefferson's own views about materialism and its relationship to Christianity and his his own belief. And then from there, I started looking at some of the other founders. But I think in terms of our contemporary debates, one of the things that, that uh, has come up you know, recently, it's not, it's not a, a, an entirely new topic, uh, is a debate about the place of Christianity in American life, its, its civic function, and the degree to which both the American founding is influenced by Christianity in the West has been, um, you know, marked by Christianity as well, and it seemed to me, at least in a lot of these debates, what kind of Christianity was never really asked. That it was mm. always assumed that Christian, everybody knew what Christianity meant, and that Christianity was some sort of static thing that's unchanging. I mean, everybody's aware that there are lots of different Protestant denominations and the divisions between Catholics and Protestants. But I think in, in, in some regard, this question of what Christianity, what form of Christianity uh, was one that, that needed to be explored a little bit more fully. So that, that was at least part of uh, the initial motivation for the beginning of the research. Uh, and at that time, when the United States was taking shape, what would you say are the dominant forms of Christianity that if there were kind of like major strands, obviously, even as you talk about these, these different thinkers in your book, they're going to have very idiosyncratic uh, uh, individual views. But uh, what were the major strands at the time? Well, I, I guess I mean, if you go, go back to early colonial America and say um, the Puritan, the, the Puritan near from uh, New England, and so yes. <laughs> John Winthrop's version of, of Christianity, and, and say traditional Anglicanism, sort of high church Anglicanism. Now, as and it didn't take long from say 1630 through the to the end of the 17th century going forward that you know as America became increasingly populous, there was a you know a wide variety of of different religious denominations. But it, at least to a certain extent, in the earliest days of colonial America, it was generally thought across the, the, the 13 colonies that Christianity was an important 
not just system of, of religious belief, but played a very uh, vital role in the encouragement of certain kinds of virtues uh, that were necessary for government. And so one way to think about Christianity, at least in the earliest days, is there's this tradition of thinking of, of the relationship between church and state that uh, in some ways is what was at times referred to as the nursing father state, that the state had to in some way attempt uh, within certain prudential limits to put the principles of Christianity into its law, that, that there's no separation of church and state as we understand it, that it was the case that most Christians thought that the church and state had somewhat separate realms, but though there was an interplay between those realms and that one's politics had to be informed by Christianity. Now, how people defined it was was obviously you know different from one denomination to the next, but on the whole, it was generally thought that Christianity should be uh, privileged by the state. And so you, if you look at a lot of the early even but you know after we win our independence, the early you know, state constitutions, there's various forms of established churches in the case of Virginia, the, the, the Anglican Church. All the states in some way, if they didn't have a kind of hard establishment, had some language in their, in their constitutions that stipulated that those who would serve in the legislative branch should be of a certain uh, Protestant persuasion more often than not, right? Believe in, in certain doctrines or profess the truth of the Bible, so on and so forth. And so, you know, trying to pinpoint like what is the dominant strain as it, as in terms of denominations is difficult, but there's, there is a largely shared view that Christianity has an important political role to play in the country and that it should be privileged. Uh, and did you call that the nursing father state? Yeah. Some in, in, in some instances, this is how it's often characterized, that hmm. the, the state is, is in, in some way a vehicle for uh, the inculcation of certain Christian virtues. And so you would have blasphemy laws in lots of places, other kinds of laws. In, some, in, in Massachusetts, I, remember I went to Boston College. I remember when I first got there, you couldn't buy beer on Sundays. And, and there was you know, these <laughs> sorts of laws driving from... Uh, Ohio to uh, Florida, where I currently work. I remember stopping in Georgia on a Sunday on the move down. You weren't allowed to buy a beer. And, and so you have Sunday closings for shopping and things like that, sometimes referred to as blue laws. And so, you know, the country had had across it a certain uh, shared understanding that Christianity was an, it was a, an important facet, not just in terms of the larger culture, but uh, in terms of how the law ought to give direction to people's lives. Now, even as you were talking about writing this, um, yeah, I, I think this is a rather obvious link, but I'd love for you to, to share it with us. I remember the first time I found out that uh, Thomas Jefferson's Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness was a rephrasing of John Locke's Life, Liberty, and Property. Um, but if you could uh, kind of elaborate for us, obviously we're talking about the American students Talk about that movement from Thomas Jefferson to John Locke for you. Okay. I, th I mean, I, I, my book doesn't want to establish that Locke's the only or even the dominant strain of thought. And there's a debate. And we often talk about the American founders as though they're a sort of monolithic group. But 
my, the, the three founders that I'm dealing with in my book, Madison, Jefferson, and Franklin, I would admit that they are perhaps more radical than a lot of their contemporaries. Not all the founders shared the same views in, in terms of the place of religion in American life or had the same religious sensibilities, but at least with regards to, to Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson was uh, very much influenced by the thinking of Locke, as you mentioned. Uh, we have his we have his notes uh, on the letter concerning toleration that went into the creation of of, of things like the, the the Declaration and more importantly the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty. And uh, if you go to Monticello today and you go into his his I guess his living room if you want to call it that, there's a portrait that he had commissioned, uh, and you can see it on the wall. Uh, the three greatest men that ever lived, and uh, the, there are three uh, faces in the painting. John Locke is one of them. The other two is Sir Francis Bacon and Sir Isaac Newton. And so Jefferson's thinking about uh, religion, religious toleration, uh, and politics uh, was was deeply influenced by Locke. Um, and in terms of Locke's wider uh, influence, it's a question about uh, you know how broadly something like the Second Treatise on Government got, got read, uh, but his essay concerning um, human understanding was, was, a, was a deeply influential work uh, for, for people like Jefferson as well. And so uh, his writings on epistemology, his writings on religion uh, were, were very much uh, widely read, at least within the circle of, of founders that I'm, I'm talking about. And so Jefferson... Uh, interestingly, in, in the letter concerning toleration, this is one example. Uh, Locke famously excludes atheists and Catholics from the circle of toleration. And in the margins, uh, or in Jefferson's own notes, uh, he, he writes in, in regard to this, this exclusion, he says that where Locke stopped, we can go on. In other words, Jefferson doesn't exclude Catholics or atheists. He has some issues with Catholics as, as many, uh, Protestants had in, in the in the period, not necessarily for their religious beliefs, but they thought that their their like Locke did, that Catholic uh, allegiances were split, uh, just like Kennedy had to defend himself uh, when he was running for president. That uh, they have two heads of state: the the Pope on the one hand and the Constitution on the other. Now, obviously, you know anti-Catholic. Bigotry has, has thankfully ended and collapsed in the 1960s, but this was this was was a form of bigotry that Jefferson himself uh, sometimes uh, fell into. But he he was willing to extend religious toleration uh, to all to all the atheists, Catholics, pagans, uh, you name it. And that that uh, you know, even as I look at the very end, and it's talking about. Um, uh, affording religious liberty to people who whose views would not harm you. Yes. Um, right. Um, it's interesting because there is a certain strand of of Catholic thought that gives the sword to the church. I wouldn't say it's the dominant strand, but you do see that argument, and that's kind of obviously plays into this sort of thing, right? Yeah, and then you're, you're, uh, you know, there's that that great line in in. Um... The notes on Virginia, where where uh, Jefferson says that it makes no difference whether his neighbor believes in no god or twenty gods, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. In other words, your neighbor's religious opinions, as long as they're not trying to steal your stuff or or harm you, 
you should leave them alone. It's really none of your business what your neighbor believes in in religiously, uh, at least. And I think this is an important uh, facet of the way that Locke and Jefferson and Madison and Franklin think about religion. They there's two. We might say, roughly speaking, there are two parts to to religion. There's there what we call the orthodoxy, the or the or the set of beliefs that a particular religious denomination ascribes to, and then the moral teaching. So we have Christ's moral teaching on the one hand, and we have a variety of uh, doctrines and dogmas relating to uh, his divinity, the concept of the Trinity, you know, notions of grace, all these other doctrinal matters. And for Locke and Jefferson, they thought that you could separate the morality from the doctrine, that it was the doctrine was getting in the way of the morality. And that what's happened, at least as they as they saw it, was that the concentration on doctrine actually led people not only to ignore ver- the virtues or the, the moral teachings of Christ, but that it actually led people to violate those those virtues, that they were willing to put up with all sorts of violence in the name of religion. Uh, but what Locke said is, how can you say you're a Christian if, on the one hand, you you say, you know, these these are the moral teachings that that Christ uh, gave to us, but then put those aside and, and engage in all sorts of persecutions in the name of doc, of doctrinal conformity and of, of so-called orthodoxy, and so to that extent, uh, what we see with with uh, Madison and and Franklin and Locke and Jefferson is a desire to try to or a hope that Christianity will be transformed whereby the doctrinal stuff won't matter. The only thing that will matter is whether or not someone lives in accord with the moral teachings of Christ. And so when he says, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether my neighbor believes in one God or no God or 20 gods or whatever it happens to be. It either picks my pocket or breaks my leg. If somebody is acting morally, then you should not worry about their their doctrinal beliefs. Those are immaterial. And so they thought that you could separate these two things out and that if we could more or less get rid of a lot of the doctrinal stuff, then the more the moral the moral principles would would shine all the more beautifully and 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 we wouldn't have all this division and sectarianism and the violence that that came with religious sectarianism that we could simply look at Christ as a moral uh, reformer as a moral as a moral teacher and so that's that was what Christianity was for Jefferson he's he, well, he in a letter he said I'm a Christian in the only way that Christ intended and Jefferson didn't believe in the resurrection. He didn't believe in it in in Christ's divinity. He didn't believe in in the. It's. I don't think he believed in the immortality of the soul, but that's 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 a question. But a lot of the same the same is true with Locke as well. The letter the the letter concerning toleration, and then this more extensive work in in the reasonableness of Christianity, is an attempt to in some way argue that. A Christian is one who lives in accordance as best they can, uh, repenting of their failure of the failures when they when they when they do fail to abide by Christ's moral teaching. And so, if you're a moral person, then you should be thought of as a Christian. Splitting different types of knowledge, uh, I think a lot of people would see that um, if they think through it as difficult. 
but I, I do see um, for our audience, can you talk a little bit about the that backdrop um, of them responding to Spinoza and to Descartes, who in turn were responding to, in a lot of ways, the Hundred Years' War, but also just the pure persecution on the European continent? Yeah, I'm not. I mean, in ter- there's been some interesting books done about Spinoza's influence on America. Um, the one that that comes to mind, I'm, I'm blanking on um, America's God. I'm, I, I can't remember the exact title, but um, it was Matthew Stewart that wrote it. I'm not too familiar with with a lot of Spinoza's influence, but it's certainly the case that um, you know, in, in for Locke, Locke is writing at the end of the 17th century. So the, the, the reasonableness of Christianity comes out in 1695. And uh, the letter concerned toleration is 1689. And, and there's still a you know, considerable amount of religious persecution going on in Locke's own time. Um, Locke was often suspected by you know, people who knew him in England of being um, uh, heretic at, at a, at a, at a at a minimum, and, and perhaps being uh, uh, worse than heretical in some respects. And so religious persecution is not something that, that they were unfamiliar with. They're not living that far away from the religious wars that, that decimated uh, European societies. And even um, if you go to some of the earliest letters that James Madison writes, um, there are a couple letters to his friend William Bradford where he complains about the persecution of, of Virginia Baptists. Uh, and uh, in these letters, he, he suggests that you know, this, this kind of persecution is going to have to end. And he sort of longs for a kind of uh, a day in which there'll be uh, genuine religious liberty in, in at least at that time in the colony of Virginia. So I'm not that, I couldn't really speak to, you know, say Jefferson's in, Jefferson's reading of Spinoza, I don't know how well read in Spinoza he would have been. It's certainly the case that he was a, he was very much interested in material science and um, believed that materialism, if it would, you know, as it, he was confident that more and more people would become materialistic over, over, over time, because that's where the science was leading, that that materialism would get rid of a lot of the the superstition he saw in in religious matters. There's a, a rather, it, I recount this in, in the book, a, a kind of funny, uh, somewhat funny story. Uh, towards the end of his life, he uh, he received a, a book from the Marquis de Lafayette, the famous Marquis de Lafayette, who played a role in the American Revolution, um, written by a Frenchman named Pierre Flourens. And Flourens had been doing experiments on pigeons and uh, what Florence did was he separated the cerebrum from the cerebellum of, of a pigeon. And he found that you could actually take it, take this portion of the brain out. Then the, the animal would lose a lot of its senses, but it could still live somehow. And, and Florence and Jefferson thought this proved the material, ba- the material basis of thought. And so it had lots of sort of uh, metaphysical implications about the immortality of the soul and and the nature of, of religious belief, so on and so forth. And so this, this, the advances in science and, and material science, particularly in the case of Jefferson anyway, uh, was what he thought was going to be a, a, a major vehicle for the, the changing of, of Christianity away from what he thought were metaphysical abstractions towards 
this more what he sometimes referred to as the original primitive Christianity, which is simply Christ's moral teaching. And so, yes, and it, um, as, as, as far as, say, Descartes and, and Newton and Francis Bacon are concerned, uh, this was at least part of, of what Jefferson uh, saw as the, the advancement of science. Um, just like uh, you perhaps are familiar with one of his last letters uh, to Roger Whiteman when he gets invited to the 50th anniversary of uh, the the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He's an old man. He can't travel anymore. But he, he mentions to Whiteman that he wishes he could be there, and he, he sort of summarizes what uh, he thinks the Declaration will mean for America. And he talks about the, the way in which science will uh, essentially triumph over monkish ignorance and superstition, the lights of science. And so this, this is at least partly Jefferson's hope. Uh, one, I found it's Nature's God. The Heretical Origins of the American Republic by Matthew yep. Stewart. Yes, that's um, it. It looks looks really fascinating. Um, and I said 100 Years War. I meant the wars of religion. Excuse sure. me for that's what happens when you speak outside yeah. your expertise. No, yeah. right. I, I, I understood what you were, you were referring to. Yes. Um, but uh, I mean, and that's where you have a lot of Descartes. Uh, I, I do know that's a lot of Descartes, you know, and Spinoza's response is to um, – it's just so different even now today when we've lived in a, in a society where like, I mean, if you, if you believe something, if you're not harming anybody, we take that for granted, but that was revolutionary for the time, literally revolutionary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. And, and, and so, you know, our, we have lots of contemporary arguments about, you know, worries about the decline of more traditional forms of Christianity, the rise of the so-called nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, and, and what's happening, you know, in terms of American religiosity. And there are some um, who argue that what we need to do is return to more orthodox forms of faith. And I think that, you know, in 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 some respects, we have to think about what exactly... Uh, was responsible, uh, at least on the this, the religious side, to, to the wars of religion, because they're not simply wars of religion. There is a political element to it. But on the religious side, it's certainly the case that doctrinal conformity and, and um, claims about orthodoxy uh, had the effect, at least in the minds of people like Locke, of setting us at odds with each other and, unfortunately, excusing a lot of rather terrible behavior uh, yes. between between uh, religious people. And so I think, you know, for those who, who are calling for more orthodox forms of faith, I, I, it, I think we ought to, you know, revisit the question of what that, what that form of, of religiosity uh, meant uh, uh, politically in terms of, of, of a greater toleration and uh, the, the manner in which Christians came to, to put aside their differences and and not concern themselves so much with uh, the beliefs of their neighbors like Jefferson, and so that's that's one that's one aspect. I'm not, I'm not sure you know if you've um, been following any of the debates with on the sort of uh, post-liberal uh, front. There's Patrick Deneen um, and Sora Bamari and a few other uh, Catholic intellectuals have been arguing for. Uh, an overthrow of the the modern liberal order, and and at least in some circles, 
there's a desire to return to something of a of a much more robust uh, confessional type state that we ought to get rid of religion of non you know get rid of the First Amendment and have established uh, established churches and things like that. And then there's another strand of this that comes up at least when dealing with America. Uh, there's been a number of books that came out within the last couple of years, uh, one by a man named Mark David Hall, who's a very interesting scholar in lots of respects, uh, who wrote a book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And he said that uh, Orthodox Christian beliefs were instrumental in the creation of the American founding. Or uh, Larry Seedentop's book on inventing the individual, uh, Tom Holland's book, Dominion. There was another piece, another book written by a, a, a very good scholar of, of Christian history, uh, Robert Wilkin, about the the origins of religious liberty in Christianity, and and it's hard for me, at least, to see how a, how the same Christianity that justified religious persecution, that justified uh, you know a, a kind of politics that was not terribly interested in in the voices of of uh, the the so-called uh, people uh, could could then give rise to religious toleration could then give rise to you know the ideas of separation of of church and state and and the like i know some people don't uh, care for that formulation but something happened to christianity between say what you what you mentioned in the wars of religion and then today right we don't you know, we're not you know, pulling uh, our neighbors out of their homes uh, to interrogate them about their religious opinions. We're not, we're not fearful, at, at least, and we're, for the most part, not terribly concerned about neighbors' religious opinions. It would be unthinkable to, say, you know, kill uh, one's fellow citizens in the name of doctrinal difference. And so something's happened. Uh, and the question that at least my book hopes to, to begin to spell out is, you know, what happened? Well, there was some kind of transformation in the way that people read their Bibles. I think, and this may be beyond the purview of the interview, so if you if you don't want to dig too far into this, I understand. Uh, something that's fascinating to me is what is the purpose of politics and what is the purpose of religion and what are the mechanisms by which they attain those purposes? What are the, the powers of religion and what are the powers of politics? What are their structures and what, what's the value of these things? If that makes sense, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of in terms of our politics, you know, what politics is meant to do as is is uh, has changed over over time, right? Uh, it's at least our politics. If we stick with say this, the plain language of the Declaration of Independence, that politics in some ways is to create the conditions whereby our our natural rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can be protected. They're not; those aren't rights given to us by government. Go- government has the job of making sure that those rights are are not trampled upon by either our fellow citizens or by the state itself. Religion has its has its as 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 its goal the leading men to their ultimate end, which is their salvation. Now, for a long time, these the um, that that idea that. That the state is to protect our inalienable rights was was not even not even dreamed of, if, uh, or was was in some way subordinate to the idea that the state can assist man in arriving at his end, and so the state would be in some way a kind of um, 
arm of the church that by passing laws that encourage us in, towards the, the the virtues that allow us to be um, living godly lives, the state could do its service to the church as well. So John Winthrop, the, the, the one-time governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, argued in a piece called on, on Christian Charity um, that you know the, the end of the state is, is in many ways to assist us in, in achieving our salvation. And so when it came to liberty, uh, Winthrop argued, we have the freedom to do what is good, what is just, and what is honest. Now, what is good, what is just, and what is honest is in, in many ways the subject of debate. And, and so um, by the time we get to the, the 18th century and the late 17th century, people are reconceiving government in very different terms. That if you try to put into, into the state the idea that man's highest end, uh, his greatest good, or uh, his salvation is to be worked uh, worked upon by the state, you end up with the kinds of controversies and the kinds of conflicts that we were we were talking about a moment ago. And so, beginning with people like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and others, the the thought was that the state ought only really to take care of the needs of the body. That this is what Locke argues in the letter concerning toleration matters pertaining to man's end and man's uh, the good of man's soul. Those should be handled either privately by the individual or by or it, or with, with the with the help of churches and communities and things. But the state itself should be largely um, neutral with regards to man's end. That the state doesn't care whether you get to heaven or not. And so politics and and the ends of politics and the ends of religion were separated in, in that in that respect. But that's that's not to say as we as you know that this is always going to work um, for those who are more religiously inclined. Or um, there are some who argue that the sep- this separation has created a certain kind of disorder in people's lives. Insofar as um, they would argue, in order to live well, we really do need the assistance of law. That that um, they would argue that. The average person uh, takes their their moral direction in some fast uh, in some sense from the laws themselves. So, take something you know we're we're experimenting in this country with the weed legalization. Now, once the law is no longer judging weed to be a, a prohibited substance, do we then say, well, it's okay to smoke weed? Well, that argument, the one argument would be, well, if the, if the law doesn't say it's bad, then it's not bad. And so the law ought to, you know, prohibit certain kinds of things simply because the law serves as a kind of moral guide. And so, you know, this this idea that that uh, the state, uh, by way of laws, can assist us in in living a, a morally upright life, but life is is something that uh, a number of critics of the the more say small L libertarian or uh, small state are, are, are concerned about. And so we're, at least in some, in some circles on the right in America, we're having a debate again about whether or not uh, we ought to have uh, a system of laws that is, is, is not simply indifferent to man's end. Yeah, it's really interesting, even as you're talking, um, 
our family has grown dramatically in the last year. Oh, we went from two to five. Um, so very exciting. But uh, it's, yes, thank you. Um, so we, um, even as you're talking about this, one of the things that uh, is a marker of a lot of these discussions has to do with the distinction between negative and positive laws, laws that prescribe things and laws that proscribe things. And when you deal with children, it becomes immediately apparent in ways that the government has learned about people that even laws that are quote unquote negative often have these sorts of positive effects. And I think we, we see that and that has become more and more of the question of our day is that we have tried to do just like we will not do harm, but what we have our, uh, I believe it was, it was someone critiquing Milton Friedman that I saw talking about this, but the, you know, if you have a transaction between two people and they succeed, there may be a third person. Um, I can't remember the technical economic term, but there's, uh, there are unintended consequences that can harm the community a, as a whole. And that's kind of what we're running into, especially as we see more globalization and we have more complex systems with lots more in unintended consequences. Things like climate change, for instance, you know, all of a sudden, like prescription and proscription become much more complicated. Yeah, no, I think I think that's fair. And, and you know. I think what a lot of people tend to perhaps at least in our political our larger political culture they we tend to be far too ideological and not um, prudential enough that you know there's 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 lots of lots of unintended consequences in in political life it's 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 simply in a in a country as large and diverse and as complex as as the one in which we live uh there's always going to be unintended consequences and and so you know what exact what exactly will the will the law do uh, is is often not known in advance and so you know i don't think that we ought to be jailing people for weed uh, possession um but then again i'm not so sure I, I i i think it's a great idea to sell weed sort of at every 711 in the country or some or or at, at every uh <laughs> on every street corner uh, with, with, without legal penalty. But uh, um, I don't have any hard and fast ideas about this, but the difference between prohibition and, say, permission, it's, it's not simply a, a mere legal matter. We have to think about what, what are the long-term consequences for communities, for individuals. And, you know, it could very well be the case that a lot of the things that we think of as necessary in the name of freedom um will have unintended consequences that that actually detract from a lot of people's freedom and so how 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 to in some way think about the law in in a in a complex society like our own requires a great deal of prudence that it's not simply a question of of permission or prohibition we have to think of more imaginative ways of trying to deal with certain kinds of of effects that that freedom necessarily involves so like you like you were saying with climate change or environmental degradation and and the like you know you can prohibit all sorts of things in the name of trying to preserve uh the environment but you know we got to make sure that that whatever policies we put in place they actually work 
rather than simply some sort of, you know, kind of virtue signaling uh, so that we feel like we're doing the right thing, so to speak. You know, I remember there was a period, they got rid of the straws and you had to, you know, drink your drink out of this nasty little paper straw. I mean, <laughs> is there any evidence whatsoever that someone that, in a, in a Wendy's in Columbus, Ohio, uh, using a plastic straw is going to have any effect on the environment whatsoever? Is it, you know, there was some woman that, that impaled herself on a metal straw. I saw a story about because they, <laughs> they couldn't get any plastic straws. But you know, these are sort of ridiculous examples. But you know, we we tend to think in 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 ways that are that are far more ideological and and partisan than in in terms of just a prudent approach to to a lot of the, the issues that that uh, that we have to deal with uh, collectively uh, across uh, party lines. And religion is one of them, I would say, as well. Yeah, uh, even as you talk about that, one of the unfortunate consequences of a representational form of government not that i'm against that i am very happy to have representation but one of the the problems with it is that the appearance of action is often more important than the action itself and to, to speak to what you're saying um and forgive me i've been sitting on this for 10 minutes but uh, it sounds like with weed you want to set the bar for highs just a little bit higher um so that's <laughs> I, I couldn't I, resist. No, no, that's, that's, that's fine. Um, but uh, I'm really interested in this idea, and um, maybe this is a good segue into Ben Franklin because I know this is the sort of thing he was really interested in. But when you talk about prudence, um, can you explain a little bit more how the government could show a little bit more prudence of its own, and maybe even produce that in its own citizens? You know, as you talk about good citizens, not good Presbyterians. I, uh, you know, I, I've never said this on the show, but I, I go to a Presbyterian church, so that's like that. That title stuck out to me. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, in, in ter- yeah. I mean, it, how how to get? Well, I think we need we need better politicians in a lot of the, in a lot of ways. Um, the primary system has has failed miserably, and. Um, Returning, uh, returning more more power to the parties probably would would have kept some of the worst kinds of candidates out of out of the public eye. But um, whether or not we'll ever see any sort of reform of the manner in which um, the parties choose their candidates is 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 hard to know. But um, a number of things uh, could 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 help uh, in terms of just the way that politicians uh, are operating. Two things at least stand out to me. Uh, one is we have increased the power of the executive branch through the administrative state in ways that violate the Constitution and and make a mockery of, of the separation of powers. And so returning a lot more oversight to Congress. A lot of a lot of people in Congress don't are are more than happy to allow the executive branch and the administrative agencies to make all these decisions because it allows them one to not have to take any responsibility for decisions they would have to make. And two, then, then, then if anything goes badly, they can blame the president, right? Oh, it's Joe Biden or it's whoever happens to be running the, uh, the executive branch at the time. And so members of Congress have lost an enormous amount of ambition uh, in preserving the prerogatives of their own branches. And so we, they've, they've, ha- they've happily gone along 
with allowing the executive branch to assume their own power. So some resurgence of congressional oversight uh, over the executive branch and the administrative agencies in particular would, would be very, very helpful. Um, the, the other thing I, I, I think is that, uh, and I don't know how you solve this problem, there's a kind of revolving uh, door between uh, Congress and the media. And, and that too many mm. members of Congress are really only interested in getting on TV. And so to the, to the degree that um, our media landscape has created sort of minor celebrities out of, you know, frankly, some of the most dim-witted people ever to serve an elective office is, is rather astonishing. And this is true on, on, on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and uh, any number, uh, uh, you know, the, the list, you know, you know, the, the list as well as I do. You know, how these people get elevated into office and then become become minor celebrities is, is rather astonishing. But that's just the way, you know, Twitter and, and, and you know, 24-hour news operates. And so how do you return to a, to a kind of prudence? Well, I, I think um, members of Congress are, 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 are in need of, of a kind of institutional discipline. And, and to the extent that hopefully the courts will revisit some of the, the the what's essentially been the delegation of congressional power to the executive branch um, hopefully we'll, we'll we'll see some of that uh, there are some some signs that the courts might strike down some of the independent uh, power of the the agency so that's that's one thing and uh, in terms in terms of Franklin uh, what would you know? What would Benjamin Franklin say say about all of this? Well, you know, it might be apocryphal, but as as uh, Franklin uh, said when asked when he was leaving leaving the 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 constitutional uh, uh, convention in Philadelphia, there's this story that somebody some woman came up to Franklin and said, "Oh, Doctor Franklin, you know what kind of what kind of government have you given us?" And he and he said to them, "A republic, if you can keep it." Um, but that, that, I think from Franklin's point of view, that would have as much to do with the people of America as with the politicians. It, it, he's addressing, at least in this, uh, it's not clear whether it's an apocryphal story, but he's addressing some woman, some, some independent woman, you know, a, a Republican, if you can keep it. In other words, if we can keep it. So, you know, we have to, the citizens of America have to do a, a better job in terms of Thinking clearly about uh, politics and being uh, more civically minded, um, and and I think Washington could do a lot if if we return to a much more robust system of federalism. That citizens aren't engaged on on a, on the local level or even on the state level nearly as much as they could otherwise be. And so you've got you've had three children recently. Uh we just uh, uh, added two foster children who were related oh, to. So yes, yeah, beautiful, yeah, that's and nice. had one. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> but you know, once you have children, and 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 you know, I would think what the, what the school system looks like suddenly becomes a concern, right? You buy a house, and what the property taxes look like becomes a concern. And so the 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 more the more people are sort of. Uh, engaged on the on the local level, the more civic minded they are, the more the more we can deal with with our politics in a, in both a, a sort of 
serious and prudential way. And, and all politics seems to have gravitated up from the local level to the, the state level and then to Washington and, and nobody pays attention. And so we could, we could probably have a much more engaged, excuse me, citizenry if we, if we returned a lot of power that has gravitated up in the system down to the bottom. That you know, this is one of the things that Tocqueville, uh, Alexei de Tocqueville, looking at America in the 1830s, admired so much, especially about your native uh, part of the country, is that the system of townships, how engaged Americans were on the local level in their politics. And people will be engaged if important stuff happens on the local level. And if Washington takes the important stuff, or I've been Florida, if Tallahassee takes the important stuff that happens on the level of the counties, then people won't be that interested. They won't pay attention. And so we we need to devolve power once again to the local level, and that might bring people out and be more serious about politics. Uh, when you talk about laws that shape people, is there a way without... Uh, perhaps um, proscribing people's beliefs that you could prescribe prudence. Is there a way that the government can uh, help? You know, one is obviously adding responsibility in the way you said, like if you give people responsibility, they will rise to it. Sometimes, sometimes they won't, <laughs> but sure. yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you can't, uh, you can't rise to something you don't have, but also is there a way of, of just, um, driving prudence in our society? Is there something that the government could do to increase that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I mean, I think, again, for, for me anyway, you know, the degree to which politics is, is handled on the local level, where, where people are, are more directly engaged, they're going to have to take more ownership of, of over the people they elect and, and more ownership over the decisions that get made. And, you know, it's, it's, it will, I would think, change people's habits in, in terms of thinking about politics. If, if I think on the national level, you know, people can elect some of the, some of the, the crazier people in Congress it, as a kind of lark almost that, you know, who cares if, if this one lunatic gets in and sends a message to, you know, whoever you're going to own the libs or whatever you're going to do. And that, you, you know, you don't, it's not a really serious thing because, you know, who knows who, 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 who going to take responsibility for the, for having that person in Congress. But if you do it in your hometown, if you elect a bunch of lunatics, in your hometown, well, then suddenly those people start to make decisions that are destructive of that hometown. It's not such a lark anymore. You, you you now have to deal with the consequences of your own decisions, perhaps. But you know how how could how could uh, the government you know make us more prudential? That's that's a hard thing to know. Um, yeah. Well, but, even as you said that, like I mean, if you're one of a hundred thousand votes that won a uh, one electoral vote and they win by. 50, you know, versus like you're one of 20 votes that got someone voted into your township. You're all of a sudden like, oh, that was my bad. Yeah. That was <laughs> yeah. And, it, and just, yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, it, just leaving things to be done on, on a more local level, it, you know, if, if, if decisions are made that impact your life and you're aware of where those decisions are being made, um, not only will you pay closer attention, but you'll have to own uh, your own vote in a way that perhaps you don't have. And and to the degree that government 
is incre- you know, increasingly taking care of us from cradle to grave, it also encourages perhaps a, a, a lack of thoughtfulness in, in, in the citizenry that, you know, we have we have we have to be able to uh, to be self-governing in a sort of meaningful sense. But if if the state is going to have continuous sort of arms around us to protect us from from all manner of things, I think it infantilizes people. Um, and so, you know, what that looks like in practice is is, is perhaps hard to define, but. Um, there, it, it doesn't seem that we're doing a lot to encourage a kind of civic responsibility in this country very often. I, I see you kind of start with um, the this theology of liberalism with Locke, and then you end with Jefferson's materialism. What are the connections you see between materialism and and liberalism, or if you see any? Well, I'm not. I, I think for um, for Jefferson and Locke, the 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 question of the material, it, at least in in Jefferson, and you can see this in Locke as well. It's a question that gets raised: um, the notion of the material basis of thought. Um, part of this, at least for Jefferson, was that certain uh, non-materialist ideas about man, about God, about the human condition. Um, led men away from a kind of rational explanation of of how the world works and and why the human condition is the way it is, and so the materialism is in in some way a substitute in in uh, Jefferson's uh, frame of mind for a heightened rationalism that reason should govern things rather than say certain spiritual notions or immater- what he calls immaterial notions. Um, and, and Locke, similarly, the, when you look at his religious writings, he, he frequently points to superstition as being a problem. And, and superstition is based upon certain notion that there are immaterial things that exist that don't, in fact, exist. Um, and that if we were disabused of these ideas, uh, we would come to a more rational and, and at least uh, in, in Locke's mind, reasonable assessment of how the world works and the manner that it works. And we can take uh, greater uh, accounting of, of, of these things and therefore order our affairs in a more reasonable fashion as well. And so um, the materialism, at least as Jefferson talks about it, has has to do with that. Um, what what exactly is is the nature of 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 the human soul, uh, how exactly is it uh, that uh, we come to possess the kinds of thoughts that we possess? Uh, there's an interest in the, there's there's an interesting uh, idea that Jefferson puts at the very beginning of the Virginia uh, statute for religious liberty, where he says something uh, to the effect, and I'm sort of trying to remember it off the top of my head, but um, he says, "Well aware that the beliefs of men." Uh, do not follow uh, volunta- voluntarily of their own will, but um, what's the? I'm trying to remember the exact words, but the long and the short of that we that our minds are in some way the things that make up the uh, the things that we believe. So that what you believe religiously is not chosen, according to Jefferson. Uh, that uh, Jeff. Jefferson and, and Madison and Franklin and Locke all make this claim that in some way 
the things that we believe, particularly with regards to religion, are not chosen in any sort of meaningful sense of the term. That what you believe is is essentially what your mind has been convinced of. The evidence, you bring all this evidence into your mind through your senses and what you read and all of that. And then the mind makes up uh, its decision as to what is compelling and what's not so compelling. And on that basis, uh, what Jefferson wants to argue and the, 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 the importance of this idea is that the natural condition of human beings is, is one of religious diversity. That if it's not up to you to believe or not believe something, whether your mind believes it or not, then it's likely going to be the case that you have you PJ have very different religious beliefs from me, and and my neighbor will have very different beliefs from them, so on and so on and so on. And so we can't necessarily control our religious beliefs. And the in terms of the operations of the mind, this was important to them. Uh, and so if I could find the passage, I, I I'd like to to read it if I if I could find it off the top of my head. It's the the first. A couple of lines of the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty. Um, Am I correct in uh, thinking that this is, in some ways, a rebuttal to Pascal's wager? Um, yeah, I think I, I, I think Jefferson would say, and, and I, I don't know this. I, I think Jefferson would say that's sort of ridiculous. I, that Pascal's wager doesn't make <laughs> a lot of sense. That you can't believe something honestly uh, just because you think it's it's going to be. Uh, better for you to believe it than not believe it. Um, I have it, by the way. Okay, it's re- yeah, it's the first line. Well aware that the opinions and belief of men depend not on their own will, but follow involuntarily the evidence proposed to their minds, that Almighty God hath created the mind free and manifested his supreme will, that free it shall remain by making it altogether insusceptible restraint. And he, he goes on, it... Right, and so what's that mean that your beliefs? Oh, that's follow- a long first line. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. follows involuntarily the, the the evidence proposed to your minds. Right, so the only thing yes. that you could, so that two things follow. One, the only thing you're allowed to use is persuasion. Right, if you want to try to change someone's religious beliefs, you can't coerce them. The only thing you could try to do is persuade them. But there's a limit to what you could persuade people of because their minds are of such an order that that what's convincing to one person is not going to be convincing to another. Franklin, in some ways, has a, sim- has a similar remark in a letter to his mother. Uh, Franklin was defending uh, a man named Samuel Hemphill, uh, on, who was a Presbyterian minister that had been brought up by the Synod of Philadelphia for essentially blasphemy and heresy. And his mother got, Franklin's mother's back in Boston, is, is worried that, you know, Franklin's getting involved in this. And, he's, and he says to his mother, you know, after saying, I, I don't know what all these heresies have to do with, and, I, and, and I'm not involved in all of that. But he says he can't change his opinions more than he can change the nose on his face. In that, and therefore, this idea that, that our opinions, and, and Locke says something very similarly, uh, if our opinions are not simply chosen, then one, we can't be culpable for those those opinions necessarily in any sort of uh, meaningful way, right? You believe what you believe. And, and therefore, what Franklin says to his mother in the letter is, don't judge a person according to the things they believe. Judge a person according to the things that they do. If they act, if they act in a way that's decent, if they're morally virtuous and upright, then you, then you shouldn't concern yourself with, with their religious opinions. 
And if they don't, well, then you can then you can criticize them. But in that way, for Jefferson, um, not only is it the case that each of us has to, in some way, undergo our own investigation into the truth of things, that you have a responsibility to try to look into things as deeply as you can. You have control over what you put into your mind. You can read widely. You can listen to lots of different arguments. You can try to experience the world in, in its, in, in its uh, manifold beauty and ugliness. And then your mind will have a lot more information to, to form these opinions on. And you have a responsibility to do that. But what comes out of that at the end of the day is not simply up to you. If you have done everything you can to try to learn the truth about God, about the world, about man, about ethics, about politics, and all of these things, if you have done your duty, as he says, to try to learn as much, then you cannot be blamed for what where, where you end up in in, lot, in lots of ways. And so this is true not only in in in, in uh, politics, but in religion, it's particularly true. And so for Locke and Jefferson and Madison and Franklin, the one obligation we have uh, to God is to try to learn the truth. And whether or not we come to know the full truth, that's hard to know. But what if we've done that? to the best of our ability, then we cannot be thought of as uh, failing in our duties as rational creatures to God. And and God won't blame us, uh, they say, that even if at the end of the day you don't believe the right things, but you've sought to try to in some way inform yourself, uh, that, that'll be enough for God. And, and therefore, your neighbors ought not uh, concern themselves so long as, as you are living in an upright way. Uh, Dr. Coleman, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Uh, as we wrap up here, what is one thing that you would leave for our audience to kind of take away and to think about and mull over or maybe even do this week? Um, I think when it, when it no comes... No pressure, to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, it, when, it, when it comes to, to, say, our political debates and, and our religious debates, I think... Extending the other side a degree of charity mm. is, is important. I, I think all too often we ascribe bad motives to people. And so we assume that people are, are out to destroy the republic. The left does it to the right. The right does it to the left. The religious do it to the non-religious. So on, and, the, and, and the non-religious do it to the religious. And there's an enormous lack of charity, it seems that people sincerely believe the things that they believe. Now, there are some people who aren't very kind, that's true. But I think the average person in thinking about politics and thinking about religion um, genuinely wants to, to do what is best for themselves, for their family, for their country. And we disagree profoundly about a lot of things. And it's fine to disagree, but it's not good to, in some way, throw aspersions at people and try to, in some way, misrepresent why they think the things that they think. And, that, and, and so a kind of mutual charity and tolerance for one another um, would go a long way in reconciling a lot of the divisions we have in this country, that your political rivals are not your enemies. We are not, as Lane said, we are not enemies, but we are friends. And so I think... Um, our, our, our society could use a, a healthy injection of just good old-fashioned Christian charity um, and, 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 and not 
leap to the conclusion that the people with whom you disagree are somehow evil or bad intentioned, I think would, would go, would go some way. And I guess the other thing I would say is gratitude. We live in, in, a, in an extraordinarily wonderful country in a wonderful age. We are, despite all the problems that we have, whether they're environmental problems, you know, the rising mental health problems, we've never, human beings have never lived as long, as healthy, had so much material prosperity, so much opportunity. We've never lived in a society that's as accepting in, in lots of ways as the one in which we currently live in. And we ought to be sort of supremely grateful um, to our fellow citizens, to the people who built this country for us. And we have a kind of obligation uh, to, to future generations to, to, to at, at, the, at a minimum, uh, pass on our own gratitude to, to a degree. And so gratitude and charity, I think, would, would be uh, high on my, my list of much-needed uh, virtues. Uh, in our contemporary life, but we'll see, we'll see how we go. <laughs> well, I love that you ended with that because that's even how you end your book that, and I think this works for gratitude as well, that charity and gratitude are the offspring of humility. And yes. just like the, and that's kind of even everything we've been talking about. That's like, you know what? Maybe I'm actually wrong about this. That's kind of the start, right? It's like, maybe you have something to teach me. Yeah. yeah that's right. If we just listen to each other a little bit, um, maybe, maybe, we, maybe we would uh, have a lot to learn from each other. I suspect we would. Uh, but yeah, these old, these old Christian virtues, especially humility, charity, gratitude, hope, um, are seem, seem to be in, in relatively short supply uh, these days. Um, but uh, maybe we just need to be recalled recalled to our senses somehow. Well, and that's, uh, you know, I love that you added hope there at the end because that, that's what we, uh, that's important for us to have, right? Like it can be easy to be pessimistic. But it's been an absolute joy, uh, Dr. Coleman. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.